This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Sunday evening in the house of God. I thought these lights were for me, but apparently it's something better, a marriage, yeah, and the ladies' conference. And uh, Brian should be a little tired. He's having to, you know, come and pick me up in the morning and then go wherever we go, and then he drops me off and he goes home. So he's got that little extra time. And he went out to Bangor on Friday because our meeting at the last minute, they had a leak in their roof and they had to move their meeting to another church. He wanted to make sure where it was. So he went out Friday afternoon to Bangor, all the way out there, uh, to just to make sure where the church was and that we'd get there on time and such. So then he comes back and gets me and we start heading back out there and the, the, the highway is closed. What is it, the A2? Because there was an accident. And we were late. <laughs> Poor Brian had made a whole trip out there just making sure we were going to be on time. And he's a real servant, a real servant's heart. If all our national directors were working as hard as him, uh, trying to bring groups to Israel, trying to connect with the local churches, I see how he interacts with the pastors like Pastor Gowdy. And uh, I just commend you, Brian and all, all you do in your heart for Israel, the Jewish people, and for the Lord. And uh, I appreciate uh, you welcoming back here, David, and uh, apparently the last time wasn't so bad that I get another shot here. But uh, just a couple preliminaries. Um, <laughs> We did a teaching series out in Bangor. They're going to have it on podcast, and so it'll be a link on the internet if you're really interested. But it, uh, um, they asked me to teach on uh, Jerusalem. It's the 50th anniversary this year of the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. And it was really our, our feast theme this year, City of God. We were focusing on uh, Jerusalem, its historic significance, biblical significance, prophetic, uh, redemptive significance. <laughs> and we started out this year among our leadership really praying and fasting, God, what's your message? So much of Bible prophecy and everything is centered around Jerusalem in this jubilee of 50 years and even uh, not only 50 years ago in the IDF liberating the old city, but 100 years ago, General Allenby liberating the old city, the, the walled city of Jerusalem from the Turks. And uh, there seems to be a jubilee cycle in place. And so we really were seeking the Lord. Uh, of course, we had some <coughs> teaching, some understanding, some insights into Jerusalem and and its role here in the end of days. But Jesus said, you bring out, uh, you know, the good sage brings out a little old and a little new from the cupboard and mixes them. And so we wanted, you know, to build on what we understood and to have some fresh insights. And uh, so this uh, is a 
teaching booklet, Jerusalem Appraising the Earth, with a series of teachings by Dr. Jurgen Bueller, our president at the Christian Embassy, and myself. And we teach, taught some of those out in Bangor uh, the other night. I just gave one to your pastor, and uh, maybe he'll pick up something good to add to his understanding. Amen. Uh, second, uh, another book that uh, I've, uh, will come out in March that I've written called Floodgates. It is the uh, uh, days of Noah, the flood of Noah, and how Jesus, Peter, Jude, all the apostles agree in the New Testament that it is a full and complete analogy for the end of days. What happened then, there's going to be something of a re replay, just not by water, but by fire this time. And it's kind of, it, it'll scare you a little, but it'll wake you up and give you insights in the days we live in. This comes out in March, but you can, all, we've got oh, some uh, little cards back there that uh, you can already go on Amazon, put in my name and the title of the book, and you can pre-order there. The page will pop up. You can pre-order or you can take the card and send it to me, and we'll make sure when it's ready, uh, we'll alert everyone. But uh, be looking for that. Can I set those there? All right, let's have some room here to preach. Amen. <clears throat> If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Hebrews <coughs> chapter 8, the book of Hebrews chapter 8. I tell you, we were singing about the blood of Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Breaks every yoke, the power in the blood to deliver us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. We're going to talk about the blood of Jesus and the new, in the new covenant tonight. <clears throat> okay, we're going to start with verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. But now he, Jesus, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises, past tense, already established, this new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the day are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their 
lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Can we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening and this gathering here, God, in your plans and purposes. God, you foreordained the salvation of each and every one here, that we would be drawn to your love and to the sacrifice of your Son, drawn to you through the very door, the only door that can access you through Jesus and the love story of the cross. God, we thank you for it, and we ask that you open our understanding deeper of all that was accomplished there and all that you attend, intended there. And God, the mighty power that is still there for each and every one of us in the power of the blood of Jesus. Lord, open our ears to hear, our hearts to obey what your spirit would say from your word to us this evening. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. This passage that I've read here from Hebrews chapter 8 is one of the uh, proof scriptures that down through church history, many church teachers, theologians, canons, whatever you want to name them, have used to uh, defend or propagate replacement theology. We can find several places in the New Testament where they've really said, you know, this proves our point and this proves our point, uh, when in fact there's a, maybe a little half-truth in it, but the fact is God has never abandoned Israel. And we can, I can show you here, but for instance, where it says, uh, and when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete? Obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, on its surface, it looks like, you know, maybe, maybe God's covenant with Israel is, is passe. You know, how, how do you handle this? It says it. What we want to do first is to look at the book of Hebrews and the context it was written in, because it has a unique historic context and why it was written in order to start answering this. And there is a, uh, an unusual connection between the book of Hebrews and Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll start first with the Romans. The Bible scholars say it was written first. And why was it written? Why did Paul write these uh, believers in Rome? You have a little clue in the uh, book of Acts chapter 18. Uh, where it's, uh, the chapter starts out mentioning two uh, Jewish people, Jewish believers in ministry, Aquila and Priscilla. And it says they had joined Paul in uh, wherever he was traveling. I think it might have been Corinth or somewhere at the time and to join him in ministry because Claudius, the emperor, had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. 
It's just a little piece of history there, a little quick version of it. But if you read some of the, uh, the Roman historians, they'll fill it in a little more. In the days of Claudius, uh, th these emperors in those days were nasty, nasty guys. But uh, there's Jewish uh, historians who say that the Jews of Rome were arguing over this guy named Crestus, sitting in, in Latin, Crestus, Christ, so much that even the emperor got tired of hearing about it and kicked all the Jews out of Rome, even though it meant a lot of the tradesmen and merchants, a lot of money leaving out the door. Uh, the, the, Claudius just got tired of the Jewish believers in Jesus and the non-believers non in Jesus fighting over his messianic credentials. It's pretty interesting. So he kicks them all out. And all of a sudden, you have for the first time a church of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of only Gentiles. No Jewish believers in these house churches in Rome. And everywhere else in those early decades of the church, the Jews were vital to the life of the church because they were the ones who knew the word of God. They knew the nature and character of God, his promises, the covenant promises. They knew the, the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. The only word of God was the scrolls of the Old Testament, and they knew it. And so they were vital to the life and vitality and expansion of the church. And here you have for the first time a church that is wholly Gentile and having to stand on its own feet. Okay? A couple years later, Claudius is dead. I think he was poisoned or whatever. These guys, it was treacherous. But now Nero takes his place. And Nero starts off, he, he's good. He, you know, he's a good, friendly guy. He invites the Jews back to Rome. Says, come on back, you know, we need your market stuff. We need your, you know, your investment. Come on back here. And so Jews are returning to Rome, including, you'll find in the book of Romans, at the, I believe at the end, a particular greeting to greet Priscilla and Aquila. In other words, they had left Paul and were going back to Rome. And there was a certain tension. Here were these Gentiles running their own church. Here come the Jewish believers back and wanting to sit in their midst again and even take roles of leadership and teaching and such. And the Gentiles say, look, you know, we've been going on our own for a few years and we've been doing pretty good. And so there was a certain tension between them that Paul is addressing in the book of Romans, you Gentile believers, do not be arrogant against my Jewish brothers because all the blessings, the, the spiritual blessings you receive, they've been through my people. And it puts Romans 9 through 11 in a whole new context. 
And there's things that even address how the Jews should be trying to, to accommodate this tension and the Gentiles, and it's addressing a lot of these things. And that is the context of why the book of Romans was written. All right, the emperor Nero, a few years down the line, he turned into a real tyrant. And he wanted to build, uh, rebuild the center of Rome to level this whole big area and build him the biggest palace any emperor or king had ever had. And uh, if you look at it, the, he, he was the guy that uh, they, they, there's still some ruins of it. He wanted a big palace, a big hall palace that was rotating around. I mean, you'd be standing there doing your dances or eating or whatever, and you're, you're, the, the room, this huge room is rotating around, pivoting around in a circle. And he wanted to build this big, elaborate, a whole section. And what he did is he deliberately set fire to one, you know, this big uh, neighborhood in the middle of Rome, and he blamed the fire on the Christians the believers of Jesus, and it started a persecution of the Christians. Part of this has to do with the, the Romans, wherever they conquered, they would uh, force the people to renounce their gods, destroy their idols and such, and start worshiping the pantheon, the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. The Jews had been given an exception. They were allowed to continue temple worship in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had no images of their God. Therefore, there was no image that would be a rival of the emperor who claimed uh, uh, semi-deified status. But now these Christians we're worshiping a man. Amen? I worship a man. He's, a, he's, he's total man, total God. They were worshiping a man, which, which means he's a rival to the emperor. You've got one here. And so Nero started persecuting the Christians, blamed the fire on them. And there's even sources that say he took Christians and, you know, put tar and oil on them and used them as human torches in his garden at night. Some nasty, nasty stuff. Fed them to the lions, whatever. And so there was this wave of persecution under him against any Christian, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, Roman, slave, it didn't matter. And there were Jews in Rome and elsewhere as this wave of persecution spread that started saying, hey, maybe this will last a few years. Let's just go back and sort of bide our time back over here in, in rabbinic Judaism for a while. Let's go back into Judaism. Maybe it's just best for us. And there were Jewish believers in Jesus starting to go back to Judaism in order to protect themselves and not be persecuted like their fellow Christians were. And the book of Hebrews is written to address this. That's the context. And you find it starts out 
that God in times past has spoken through the prophets to us, but now he's spoken through Christ Jesus. And then it starts talking about angels. You know, what, what are they, you know, comparing Christ with angels? What's going on there? Well, some of the, the Judaizers in the church were saying, look, you know, that, that old covenant, the covenant with Moses, it was pretty good. And guess what? It's, it may be even superior to the new covenant because it was delivered through angels. Jesus was just a man, but that was, you know, the angel of the Lord did this with Moses and the angel of the Lord said that with Moses and, and whatever. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, ah, oh, no, 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 no. What, what angel did God ever say to thou art my son in whom I'm well pleased? Did he ever say that to him? Like us made a little lower than the angel that glorified and the very son of God. Then it starts comparing uh, Jesus, this mediator of the new covenant with Moses, the mediator of, a, of, of the old covenant. And it starts saying Moses was, was faithful in all his house. And guess what? Jesus was, was faithful. And when you start comparing mediators, you know, Moses was good and, and faithful, but he was also flawed. He got angry. He got angry. Oh, but this Jesus, he's different. He, uh, you read in Hebrews 7. Jesus has become, uh, this is verse 22, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by, by death from continuing, but he, but he because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such an high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Is that Moses? No. You go up to verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Talking about the uh, priesthood under Aaron versus the priesthood of Melchizedek, according to the power of an endless life. And the teaching that what it is talking about in Hebrews 8 is that the, uh, the church replaced Israel in God's covenant relationship. It's not what it's talking about. What was changed was the mediator. Do you understand this? Instead of Moses, you have Jesus. God, a mediator is God deposits the promises in a man, Abraham, Moses, David. David was the mediator of a covenant, Jesus. And, and that, that mediator says, these are the promises of God that he's given me to give to you if you follow what I'm commanding. And what was changed was not the church for Israel. But the Aaronic priesthood gave way to Jesus, my high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's that simple. 
And in fact, it says here, this new covenant is actually going to be made with the same people that the old covenant was made with. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So somehow Israel is still here. And it says in verse 6 that it was established by the mediator already, established on better promises. But, but by the time this is written, the book of Hebrews is written, God has already found the house of Judah and the house of Israel and, and established this covenant. When? At the Last Supper. Jesus gathered his disciples. They came from the house of Judah and the house of Israel and all his followers. But it was through the disciples that he first administered this. And he deposited with them promises God had given him at the Last Supper. Basically, it is in the nature of marriage vows. In that day, if, if a, a young man wanted to marry a woman, his words of betrothal, when he would say, you know, I want to take you as my wife, he would say, look, I'm going back to my father's house, and I'm going to go build us a house there alongside his. And when my father says it's ready, I'm going to come get you. And we're going to have a ceremony, and, that, and we're going to live together there. That's basically what you would say. And that's what Jesus said to his disciples. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place there for you. And I'll come again to receive you so that where I am, there you may be also. These are words of betrothal. And what you have to understand is even the Mosaic Covenant, when they reached Sinai, one of the things going on there was a marriage covenant, an exchange of vows where God promised to provide and be a husband to the people of Israel. And they said, we're in on this. We want to be your people and we'll follow you. This old covenant that they agreed to, when it talks, when it calls it an old covenant, there are actually four covenants in salvation history in the Bible. Abrahamic covenant, uh, Moses, the one with Moses, the one with David, the new covenant. So when it's just talking about old or new, you just can't say all three of those old ones. It's what it's talking about and what this passage in Hebrews 8 is doing is comparing the two covenants out of the four that regulate how God deals with sin. And under this old one, God had set up this system of animal sacrifices where they were sacrificing animals at the altar with the priesthood there. And one day a year, the most important was Yom Kippur when the high priest, the high priest alone, would go into the presence of the Lord first for himself and his family to atone for his own sins and then a second time for the sin 
sins of the people. And if he had sinned himself, he would have died in the presence of the Lord. And so they would tie a rope around his waist, and he had bells sewn into the bottom of his garment. They've even found some of the, one, one of these bells uh, in Jerusalem from temple service, so that if you, you heard him, you'd be listening. <laughs> Only he could go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat, and they would be listening, and, and, and if he was still moving and you heard the bells, it's a good sign. It's a good sign. And if he died because he or his family had sinned, or later if he went in for the sins of the people and God went and sat and he fell out, no one could go in there to retrieve his body. You didn't want it, you know, lying there and, and decaying. So they would have a rope around his waist to pull him out. And this whole system, what Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews, is it was good, it was holy, it, it, it showed everyone there are consequences for sin. There has to be shedding of blood. But the blood of sheep and goats and bulls is not sufficient to truly redeem a human person, a human soul. It takes the, the blood of a man to redeem mankind. And these sacrifices were just foreshadowings of Christ's sacrifice to come. Now, this old system is important because within the Mosaic Covenant, for instance, you have the Ten Commandments. This is a reflection of God's holiness, His, His, uh, uh, His glory. And, and the new, Paul says, they are my tutor. They lead me to Christ. The problem is we don't, you know, God promises to send a redeemer one day to Abraham. Gonna, through you and your son, I'm going to bless or, or, or save the world. Where the world doesn't know it needs to be saved. So the Ten Commandments come along and, 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 and we hold our lives up against them. And we see we fall short of the glory of God. He's holy. You know, even, even lying. There's not a person in this room who hasn't lied. It's just in our nature. At some point in your life. And the Ten Commandments tells you why you need this Redeemer that was promised through Abraham. So it's good and it's holy. And that has not, it's not obsolete or passed away. What was passing away was the rituals done at the temple, which were foreshadowings of the sacrifice of Christ. And it was because the writer of Hebrews lived in a time when the Jews were uprising against the Romans, and he could foresee that Jerusalem was in there. It was a, there was a big target, and they would probably lose their temple. It wasn't quite, it was still before the destruction of the temple, but he's saying something's about to pass away here. But it doesn't mean that God's covenant relationship with Israel was passed away because that is founded on his covenant first with Abraham, okay? We understand what it's talking about is the ritual provisions 
in the covenant with Moses that regulated how God dealt with sin under this covenant. And if you read it here in chapter, in verse uh, 9, it says, Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them. I don't know if we're putting these scriptures up here. Some translations in this verse, what, what ver- I have New King James. Anyone have another version? You can just shout it out. Some will, some will say, I neglected them. I've even seen translations say, I abandoned them. And this traditionally was interpreted to mean God disregarded, neglected, or abandoned the people of Israel. But that's not what it's talking about. What is being compared here is how God dealt with sins under the old covenant versus the new. And under the old, if, if you were, you know, the high priest did his job and you were found, you know, in good relationship with God, God actually would hold his nose for another year and overlook your sins. That's what it means. The blood of, of animals, it was sufficient enough to serve as a temporary patchwork from year to year if you were really repenting and serving and being obedient to this system, but it was really looking forward to the system to come. If you look back at the original in Jeremiah chapter 31, I hope everyone can follow what I'm, I'm saying here. I'm giving you quite a bit, but this is, this is important. Uh, with all the Bible studies uh, and Bible tools that we have, especially online today, you know, this is how you really dig into the Word of God and find out what it says. If you read the original in the book of Jeremiah, which was translated from the original Hebrew, that same verse says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. And when you read it in the New Testament, it reads a little different. I disregarded them. The reason your pastor will tell you whenever in the New Testament they're quoting from the old, they're using the Septuagint, which was uh, the king of Egypt asked 70 Jewish sages to do a Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, a couple generations before Jesus, and so they always quote from it. And, and then it's then quote, it, it's then translated from Greek into Latin and Latin into English and, and, and all of this. And every translation uh, reflects the theology of the translator. I'm not undermining the authority of the Word of God here, but I'm telling you, sometimes you've got to dig and use the tools that we have to find out for yourself exactly what it says in the original Hebrew. It says three words. It's translated, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them. It actually says three words. Brit, covenant, uh, violated or broke, uh, the Hebrew word for that, and then Baal, husband. 
and you know it's it's good valid interpretation the way it is there that and what god was overlooking was the violations of the marriage covenant and this new covenant which is a marriage contract in itself there is a new way that God deals with sin, which is the way he really intended from the start. But he gave us a sort, sort of picture. And then he sent his son to live in these bodies, be tempted like us, so that he could be that perfect mediator for us through his suffering and even a momentary separation from God forever. He's my high priest knowing exactly what I went through and I, I couldn't ask for a better one. But what does it say here that, that I don't need to tell you how to know God? That each and every one of us, you don't need someone to say, well, you can know God this or this. How? It says the, the common denominator for everyone under the new covenant is that you come to know God through the forgiveness of your sins. And it's not that he just holds his nose and overlooks, you know, uh, disregards them for another year. No, he not only forgives them, he forgets them. Now, I know we have uh, some young folks in the audience. I know my, um, they say about the young millennials today, it's hard to keep their attention. But I, I've seen that if, if you, if there's a teaching on that's good, solid truth, uh, you know, some teacher they like that's got, you know, good, solid knowledge and truth, they'll watch them for hours, just like you and I would. A lot of them like this uh, Ravi Zacharias, who is like a Christian uh, apologist and very brilliant and scientific, and he can talk tele teleological and ontological. You kind of lose me when you get there, but you just know he, and he gets in these debates with atheists and whatever, but it always seems somehow that you wind up in this sort of draw that no one really convinces the other side, and you know, you, you come to this conclusion that uh, uh, we want Ravi at the feast. I think he's brilliant. I think he's great. But it seems you always wind up that, that uh, you know, the other side always says, well, uh, you know, you can't prove God, but you can't disprove him. And, and that's where the argument ends. There is something to natural, what we call natural theology. The book of Psalms, chapter 19, says that the heavens declare his handiwork. All the great early scientists, Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo and Copernicus, they all studied the stars because they believed that they revealed the secrets of the designer of the universe, the creator God, and they studied them. And I'll give you just, you know, an example uh, that we have... The sun, which is about 118 times the size of the earth, 
and it's 93 million miles away. We have the moon, which is about a quarter the size of the Earth, and it's about 250,000 miles away. One massive and way out there, one a lot smaller than us, and, uh, but a lot closer. And to the human naked eye standing on the face of our planet, these two bo heavenly bodies set up there at signs that it's proven every time there's an eclipse that to our eyes, they look the same exact size. And every time you see a, a, an eclipse, it proves it. And how did that happen? You'd have to have, you know, some brilliant uh, uh, geometrist to come up and do the calculations and draw and how it would, you know, it's phenomenal. It shows there's a designer. The heavens declare his handiwork. That alone, it stared us in the sky day and night. Day and night. Proof of a creator God, but it's still, is that going to get anyone over the hump? You know, some, they're still going to say, ah, no, 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 no. But what amazes me is that we serve of God, and we have discovered a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful. He, he could reveal himself. He, you know, we could come to know him through, through you know, mighty power and, or, you know, incredible displays and, and knowledge. And yet God wants to be known first and foremost by uh, the human race that he created, the thing in creation that's most like him, he wants us to come to know him as a God of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And that under the new covenant, each and every one of us come to know him beyond the shadow of a doubt. You know that you know that you know that you know there's a God in heaven who made you because you, you had the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sins and you felt that weight and that guilt and that conviction and in the same instant washed away. They ask, you know, like, Actors, actresses on the talk shows, it's become like a popular question with all the big uh, Marvel movies and superhero movies today, you know. If you could have a superpower, what would you have? And, you know, people will say, well, I, I'd fly, x-ray vision, you know, we got Mr. Stretch, we got Spider-Man and Superman and Mr. Freeze and all, you know, some of those, you kids could shout out some of these others. Where, who, who would ever think of a, a superpower, Mr. Forgiveness? Mr. Forget. This is the God we serve. He wants to be known 
first and foremost as a God of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and even has this ability to forget anything, any violation, any sort of rebellion, any sin. It says unrighteousness. I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, their lawless deeds. You can call it transgression, iniquity, all the words the Bible uses. It, the blood of Jesus takes care of it all. And that's how God wants to be known. And you can argue with me that there's no God all day long, and I will just, you know, forget it. I know there's a God who created the universe and created me and, and even knows me and loves me. How? Because he forgave my sin and you can never, ever rob me of it. The devil tries. Don't let him rob you of it. Don't let him take it away. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We live in a time where, you know, it's always been this way, I guess, that you want to forget things. I, um, you know, I've, I've forgotten more than I can ever remember. Ten times more than I remember. I'm bad with names I forget and, and whatever. And it's just strange the things you remember. And, you know, it's the little wounds and things people do to you that you just can't. The things that we remember, it's just odd, you know, how it gets impressed in us. And it's always, you know, something, you know, it's usually something, uh, they either did something good to you or something bad. And uh, I remember... Um, on my honeymoon with my wife, we got married in Holland in this historic synagogue in Holland. And then we went to Portugal for a 10-day or so honeymoon. And on about day three, um, the honeymoon was over <laughs> because she told me how to drive. <laughs> and... Uh, I'll never forget it. I laugh about it now. We, we've forgiven and we, you know, but I, I can't forget it. It's just there. And I laugh about it now. The things we remember, the things we forget, it's, and, and the very power of God to so cast everything I've done that, that was ever an attack on his holy character, everything I've done to shame myself, everything I've done to other people, washed away and forgotten. That's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift and an incredible ability of God to say, I, I, you, never, you won't be able to, uh, you know, I want to hold you account for those things. That's a wonderful gift. Precious is the flow that washes white as snow. We need to sing about the blood of Jesus some more. I remember um, 
a few years ago, uh, we had a, um, uh, he's a Jewish film producer, and, and he's a, you have uh, here in the United Kingdom, Jamie Oliver, the Naked Chef. With this guy, he's an archaeologist, Jewish guy in Jerusalem. He started a show called The Naked Archaeologist. And one of his big uh, early, he did a whole documentary on this, um, uh, this burial cave found in south central Jerusalem where one of the bone boxes, the stone bone boxes they found there said, uh, um, James, son of Joseph, and then there's a comma, brother of Jesus, brother of Yeshua. And th there was a whole court case. This was a big find in this cave because, you know, here's James. He, Jesus had a brother named James, a father named Joe. Is this, you know, the brother, the, he was the head of the church. Is this him? And, and uh, they were presenting it. It was later found out the, the phrase Brother Jesus was, was a forgery that basically concluded that in a court case. But uh, James Cameron, who was the, uh, the producer or director on the Titanic movie, he got involved in producing this documentary. And it basically followed the whole Gnostic line, Dan Brown, uh, what was his novel and, and the movie? Um, you know, it's this whole thing that uh, Jesus never went to the cross. He married Mary Magdalene and had a child and lived out his life and died around 50 or 60. That's what he was trying to, to say in this movie. Uh, based on what was found in this family burial cave. Now, about two or three years later, he came out with another documentary about uh, the family of Caiaphas. They found their burial cave in Jerusalem, another New Testament figure found in Jerusalem. And in one of the bone boxes, they found the heel of a man, about a 30-year-old man, with a big nail through it which is the best evidence that, that we have from archaeology in the land of Israel of a Roman crucifixion. And he built a whole new documentary around the, the Israel Archaeological Authority and, and, and others who had been uh, sort of hiding this in some archive somewhere. They're hiding this proof uh, that this is, this is Jesus and, you know, proved he was crucified. One movie he says he wasn't, and the next he was. You know, this is shameful. But when that first movie came out, the media starts coming to me. I handle our media relations, and they start coming to me. And they say, you know, what, what does, how, how do you respond to this, that, that it was an assault on, on the core of Christianity, that Jesus never went to the cross? And what do you say, to, you know, do you believe this? And I answered, I said, I, I don't believe it, and I never can. Because if I do, it means I have to take my sins back. And I don't want them. And that's how I was quoted in, in the mainstream press. I'll never be robbed of what was accomplished, and I'll never be robbed of the knowledge of God. That's in the face of Jesus, my mediator, my high priest. And there's still power in it. There's still power in it. There's power to forgive. We can forgive others. 
If he, in the same measure that you forgive, you'll be forgiven. It's not easy. Things, you know, people have done to, to us and all, but it can block you. You can get bitter over these things. We, you know, we need that, that holy forgetter ourselves. Not that you'll ever forget it, but you can, you can laugh at it. It doesn't have any sting. You don't hold anyone accountable for it anymore. Oh, the mercy God has shown us through the precious blood of his son in the new covenant. Oh, the way that God deals with sin now is so wondrous and miraculous and powerful. What, what can compare to it? And we serve a God that more than anything else and it's the very basis of this, this, this marriage relationship we have with him, that, that we're a bride uh, suited for him because he's forgiven us. Oh, we're not clean and spotless ourselves. It's the blood of Jesus that has made us this way. Can we pray? Lord, I thank you for your people gathered here. I thank you for the listening ears and the hearts that have been open to your word. I thank you for the message, God. Let it even penetrate in me deeper and deeper, God, to appreciate all that you've done and accomplished through the blood of Jesus. How? You can forget it all. I don't know, but I'm so grateful, so grateful, so grateful that it'll never be held against me. All the wonder and the power of the blood of Jesus to deliver us and free us and wash us and cleanse us. We thank you, God, that there's a, a, a new way and that we can come boldly into your throne, not with a rope around our waist, fearing that you might not accept us, but because we enter through the veil of the flesh of Jesus, we can come boldly to you and receive mercy in time of need. God, we can have full confidence and the anchor of the soul, the hope that we have, redemption, in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for it forever and ever and ever. Thank you for redeeming these people. Keep them strong in your way and on your path. Lord, help them to be able to minister this love and forgiveness that's available in the cross to their community, God. Give them that fresh burden for souls and that fresh way to express what you've done on in their lives that they can tell others there's forgiveness in God. You can know God. I don't really have to prove him to you in some intellectual way. Just call on his name. Prove yourself over and over through each and every one here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.